Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind. Like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. It's Friday, June 19th of 2015. Jeanette and her parents arrive at Rustler Park in their motorhome in the early afternoon. Rustler Park is a remote meadow high in the Chiricahua Mountains a large mountain range with 9,000-foot peaks in southern Arizona. There's a campground there. Rimmed with Douglas fir and Ponderosa pines, it's a cool mountain respite from the desert all around. From the base of the mountain to the top, one rises from desert cactus to alpine meadows. The equivalent of a trip from Mexico to Canada, except in a 20-mile drive. Jeanette, Eduardo, and Lydia drove from Deming, New Mexico, which is approximately three hours away. They would have passed through Portal, the town I was talking about in episode one, and then from there up a long, bumpy, unpaved road to get to the top of the mountain. They had planned a camping trip with friends and family. It was supposed to be a get-together for Father's Day, which included the Seventh-day Adventist church where Eduardo is a pastor. But Eduardo wanted to arrive the day before so that he could have everything set up. From The Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. We knew that, you know, it was a Father's Day weekend, more than likely it was gonna, the spots were going to get full. So he came up here that morning, and then, you know how there's no cell phone coverage up there, he went back down probably to here, called me and said, well, we're in Rustler Park. I said, okay. That was Eduardo's son, Oscar. Oscar, his wife and children, were to join them later that day. All of the other guests weren't expected until the following day, Saturday. It's believed that Jeanette and her parents pulled into the park around 2.30. We know this based on several accounts by other people that were present on scene. The most reliable account comes from a Forest Service employee, Ranger Cox, who was working at Rustler Park when the family arrived. Ranger Cox was supposed to end his shift at 2.30 that day but he stayed behind until about 2.50, and he remembers them pulling in shortly before he left. He only recalls seeing two individuals, who he describes as an older Hispanic male and female. He sees them park their motorhome, get out, set up the canopy, and move some camping gear. None of the timelines given by Jeanette's parents are reliable. For one thing, they had no specific reason to be attentive to the time. To complicate matters, Due to the proximity to New Mexico, cell phone towers in the area cause phones to display New Mexico time off and on, which, at that time of the year, is one hour ahead of Arizona. But there was also another Forest Service employee present, Tom Weaver. That is not his real name. I'm using a fictitious name for this podcast. You'll see why later on. 
Ranger Weaver was cleaning the restrooms next to where the Castrions ended up parking their motorhome. He said that they drove past him twice before parking there, and on both occasions he waved at the couple, but they didn't wave back. He observed them parking and continued doing his work. Also, Ranger Weaver doesn't recall seeing Jeanette. He believes he only saw her parents. The Castrions circle around the campground in order to pick a spot. They end up parking their motorhome by a set of picnic tables. That's what they were parked, right in this park turnoff in here. That's where the RV was. Eduardo says Jeanette helped him settle in and unload tables and other camping equipment. At that point, Eduardo started cooking for dinner. He said that they hang out inside the motorhome because it's too hot outside. Meanwhile, Lydia entertains Jeanette with her phone. They were waiting for Oscar and his family to arrive so that they could eat together. But since Oscar's running late, they go ahead and eat dinner anyway. After dinner, Lydia said she wanted to go for a walk. She asked Jeanette to go with her, but she declines. She doesn't like walking. It takes some convincing, and finally, Eduardo suggests that she take the payment slip to the camping fee box, something Jeanette liked to do. Somewhere between 6 and 6.30 p.m., Jeanette and Lydia walk away from the motorhome and head north towards the campground entrance. At that time, there was still plenty of sunlight. You can find the map of Rustler Park on our website, labyrinthpodcast.com. I also included photos there so that you can visualize where this all happened. The link to the website is in the show notes for this episode. Meanwhile, Eduardo says he stayed inside the motorhome. He said he was sitting in the driver's side and was on his phone while looking back through his side view mirror for them to return. He said he observed them walking away from the motorhome and around the bend and out of sight. Jeanette and Lydia walk downhill about a thousand feet to where the fee box is located. That's 300 meters. Jeanette pushes the envelope into the fee box. At that point, Lydia tells Jeanette that she needs to use the restroom. There is a bathroom just a little further down from where the fee box is. Here is where I told Jeanette, I need to go to the bathroom. Let's go to the bathroom. And she said, no, I'm going back to the motorhome. She was doing okay, but she doesn't like walking. She doesn't like walking, so she told me, I'm going to go back to the motorhome. So Lydia parsed ways with Jeanette at the fee box. While Jeanette retraces her steps towards the motorhome, Lydia continues down towards the restroom, which is only about 75 yards away from the fee box. That's 70 meters. On the map, it's called restroom number one, and it's located at the north side of the campground, right by the parking lot and entrance. Before entering the bathroom, she turns around to look at Jeanette one last time. She's walking south towards the motorhome, just like she said she would. Since nobody was around, Lydia props the bathroom door slightly ajar with the use of a rock, in case Jeanette changes her mind and walks back to the bathroom. Knowing Jeanette's usual pace, Lydia was sure that by the time she finished using the restroom, Jeanette would still be visible up the roadway, and she would catch up to her before she could reach the motorhome. I didn't take longer than one or two minutes in the bathroom. Two minutes at the very most. Okay. Okay. You got out of there, and you went. And I walked back quickly to try and catch up with her. But when she exits the bathroom stall... Lydia finds that Jeanette is out of sight. She realizes that Jeanette must have made it to the curve in the roadway. 
But Lydia thought that was odd, given how slowly Jeanette typically walked. Lydia made the short walk back to the campsite and didn't encounter Jeanette on the way. She approached the motorhome and found her husband sitting in the driver's seat. Next thing I knew, my wife came in and told me, is Janet back? I thought, no, she's not here. The two of them started searching for Jeanette immediately. They walked in all directions, calling out her name. They called for her as loud as they could. And so she went up and screamed and yelled, and I have a whistle. I whistled at her, something like, she always answers to that. Under normal circumstances, if Jeanette could hear them, she would have responded to their calls. Her hearing was very good. They spread out on foot. While Eduardo walked back downhill towards the fee box, Lydia, who was faster and in better physical condition, walked in the opposite direction. She walked south towards an area called Long Park. Make a mental note about Long Park, because it'll come up a lot in this story. Long Park is another campground about a mile and a half south of Rustler Park that can be reached through a dirt road either on foot or with a four-wheel drive. Take a look at the map. From Rustler Park, one can head north towards the exit and back down the mountain, or south towards Long Park. The forest road dead ends at Long Park. From the fee box, if Jeanette had kept walking straight and not taken the turnoff for the motorhome to her right, she would have headed in the direction of Long Park. But that road is uphill and strenuous, and it's unlikely, if not impossible, that Jeanette would have gone that way. Lydia hikes up there anyway, but there was no sign of her there either. Eduardo and Lydia are not successful in locating Jeanette. They regroup by the motorhome and decide to drive around the campgrounds instead. On one of their rounds, they stop and talk to a group of six people that were camping nearby to ask if they might have seen Jeanette. They said they hadn't. At around 7.30, Oscar and his family finally arrive. The timestamp is not certain here either, because Oscar gave different accounts of when he arrived, but the only certainty is that he recalled the sun was about to set, or had just set, and at that time of the year, the sun sets close to 7.30. So for now, we're going to go with the assumption that Oscar arrived between 7.30 and 8 p.m. Um, I think that I had uh, gotten out of work late that day, so my dad was going to come up earlier. You know what time you went? Um, I, we came up here about 7 or 8 o'clock, right around when sundown was. Um, I drove up later that evening and uh, got here around. Do you remember the time you got off work? Uh, probably midday. Okay. Except for we, we had the kids yeah. and my wife takes forever to get ready, so I had to wait for her. So it wasn't, I usually take a long time before we take off. Oscar first learned that Jeanette was missing when he drove into the park and came face to face with his father driving towards him. And when I met him, I knew that I was his RV. I rolled down the window and I could tell sort of a sense of urgency from his voice that my sister had gone missing. Oscar immediately joins his parents in an effort to help locate Jeanette, who hadn't been seen in over an hour. Initially, he's not that concerned. And it's not unusual for that to happen because she's done that before. Usually she'll just wander off. Her mind's not right, so she at times has wandered off and she'll eventually just come back or we find her somewhere down the road well, or something like that. She never went very far anyway, right? Yeah, so her, her uh, physical abilities aren't that good either. So it's not like if she can hike, especially up in that mountain, it's, we're at, that's 9,000 feet. And most of the trails lead up or, you know, pretty steep or such. She wouldn't have gone very far. So we thought, well, 
surely we're going to find her here in a little bit. Not a big deal, so. First, they look around the campground. Then Oscar tries driving his Volkswagen Jetta up Long Park Road. The road that goes further up from that campground starts to get really rough. I actually tried going up that, and the car started hitting in the bottom. So I got off and started walking up that road for a while. Um, and I didn't see anything. I got far enough to where I was like, there's no way that she's going to be up here anymore. I know her condition. She would have come back right away, so. Maybe out of fear or panic, Eduardo tries driving the motorhome up that same road. Unsurprisingly, it becomes high-centered and gets stuck. Finally, at 10 past 9 p.m., Oscar makes a call to 911. In order to do so, he would have had to drive back down the mountain to get a signal, which would have taken him about an hour. Around 10 p.m., logs show that Cochise County Sheriff's Office dispatch reaches search and rescue coordinator Sergeant David Noland. But the team was on another mission and didn't arrive until half past midnight. Meanwhile, it was pitch black at Rustler Park. While they're waiting for help to arrive, Oscar and his parents keep searching in all directions. They use their cell phones' flashlights to see where they're going. When the team arrived, they observed Eduardo trying to jack up the motorhome. Sergeant Noland noted that Mr. Castrion never paused what he was doing to come and talk to him, which he thought was odd. Dad never, ever talks to me. He's busy trying to get the motorhome unstuck. He doesn't acknowledge you at all? Nope. He's just busy, busy crawling underneath it and trying to jack it up and, and running around and getting in it. So he gets the story from speaking to Lydia as Oscar and his wife help translate what she's saying. There are five volunteers on scene. One team searched the area near the bathroom, including a ravine or drainage right below it. They walk along the canyon about three quarters of a mile, but it didn't reveal any clues. Another team was sent south towards Long Park and went all the way up until the end of the road. They searched for footprints and didn't locate any that didn't belong to the family members that were searching. Shortly after, the Arizona Department of Corrections chase team arrived with their canines. This is Sergeant Noland reading from the notes of one of the dog handlers. She wanted to collect scent articles for her dog. Everything was folded nicely at the foot of the queen-size bed in the back of the RV. All of Janet's clothing. clothing. Mom could not say where Janet was sitting during their trip. The daughter-in-law was translating, so it was... Um, Oscar's wife. Oscar's wife. wife. Yep. Our dog handler asked all of the family that had been in the RV to line up along the RV so they could bring their dog past and do elimination scent on each of them. Father refused to come out from underneath the, the motorhome. Stayed under the RV. She had to take the dog over to him, working frantically under the RV. And same thing, what I told you. He never, when I was talking to the family, he never came out. I mean, he'd crawl out, go around the other side, go back, and he was just frantically working on the RV and never, ever made contact with me the whole evening. Starting from the restroom, both dogs ended up going south towards the campground, then towards Oscar's vehicle. It says in the report that all the canines deployed during the night gave the same response. 
They worked the bathroom, the pay station, the Forest Service Ranger Station, and then ended at Oscar's car. So, since Jeanette's scent led the dogs towards Oscar's car, they asked Oscar if he'd let them have a look inside the vehicle, and he said yes. They checked the passenger compartment in the trunk, and they didn't see anything other than camping gear. This is Detective Juan Hoke. That's not uncommon because she would have, and I asked this, how many times has your daughter been in Oscar's car? Probably literally hundreds. Yeah. How many times in the motorhome? Hundreds. Yeah. What would have been odd is to say the scent goes to this car, and this car belongs to a stranger. At 4 a.m., the search was interrupted. It's day two. Jeanette has been missing for about 12 hours. Operations resume at 6 a.m. on Saturday. On this day, the search intensifies and more volunteers from neighboring counties are called in to assist. Volunteers map out and search a five-mile radius around the point where Jeanette was last seen. While on the trails, they pay particular attention to any signs that indicate that a person might have fallen or slipped. We were desperate. We didn't know what else to do. That Saturday morning, they still had no answers for us. At that time, you already start to know, you know, the canine hasn't found her. Something really bad is going on. I felt very frustrated because too much time was passing and she just wasn't found. That last one was Sochi, Jeanette's sister. She and her husband drove from California all the way to Rustler Park and arrived on Saturday afternoon. I just didn't even ask. I told my husband, we're going. And I just packed up a few things. We got on the road immediately. Fabian, the couple's other son, also joins his family. Remember all the church members that were expected to arrive on Saturday? They're all there now, too. What did you find when you got there? A lot of people. My mom, she was devastated. She was crying to no end, and search and rescue people were there, the detectives were there, and they were just in search mode. They had maps out, they were, you know, telling us, we need you guys to do this, we're going to go search here, this is what our theories are, you know, things like that. And then they kept asking questions, you know, to gather more information to piece together what they were working with. The tension is rising. For Jeanette's parents and siblings, every minute that goes by means the chances of finding Jeanette alive become slimmer. But search and rescue started to get frustrated, too. The presence of so many people on the scene makes it more difficult for them to do their work. Not only that, but they feel some friction with Jeanette's father, who they feel is being uncooperative. At times annoyed or defensive when they ask him questions, and according to a few volunteers, he doesn't seem to be emotional in the way that they would expect. Sometime on Saturday afternoon, search and rescue volunteers note that Eduardo is seen cooking for his friends and family. But there's more. One of the volunteers said Eduardo told her that when he was sitting in the motorhome and looking out of his left side view mirror, he saw Jeanette walking south towards Long Park but did nothing to stop her. Apparently, another individual, a canine handler, heard the same story. But from where the motorhome was parked, the intersection is approximately 100 yards away and partially obscured by large boulders, a slight curve, and trees. It would have been really difficult to see anyone. Also, there are now two versions floating around about when Jeanette was last seen. The first one's the one you've already heard. Jeanette and Lydia parted ways at the fee box. Jeanette walked south towards the motorhome, and Lydia walked in the opposite direction, down the road to the bathroom. 
But according to the report, the previous night, Lydia gave a different story. She said that Jeanette walked to the bathroom with her. Lydia allegedly said she left the door ajar and told Jeanette to stand in the doorway so she could see her. But Jeanette moved out of her view, and when she exited the bathroom, she was nowhere to be seen. This could have been a simple misunderstanding due to language barriers. Perhaps the story was lost in translation. Or maybe Lydia was under shock and wasn't thinking straight, just a few hours after her daughter disappeared. Based on the canine handler's observations, it appears that the victim may have been removed from the scene, as if she got into a vehicle. The dog's reactions indicate that Jeanette had been on the roadway and never strayed off the roadway into the forest. And her scent is lost somewhere between the bathroom and the campground. Here's Detective Hoke again. I said, you're telling me you lost sign right here. And they said, yeah, we've just, we've lost it from this point on. And I said, well, then we're right on the road here, basically. So she got another car. Somebody abducted her. The Arizona Department of Corrections chase team has been successfully used in the past in locating lost hikers in the desert and forest areas of Cochise County. Here's Oscar. You have to trust science if the dog that's been trained to uh, detect smell, and I, I know how it works. A person is shedding skin every single minute they're out. Their, their noses are so good at detecting it. It was impossible. There was not wind or rain or any factor to have said she it definitely kept walking up the forest. Um, there was no wind. There was no wind. So when they said the dog pretty much lost the smell at a certain point on the road, she probably got picked up then. That's the most likely thing that happened. Also, some people note that sometime on Saturday morning, Oscar leaves Rustler Park with the Black Jetta and returns with a different vehicle, a white Tacoma pickup. These inconsistencies in the story and their belief that Jeanette might have been abducted are what prompted the search team to get detectives involved. This is no longer a search and rescue mission. It's now an investigation. This is Search and Rescue Coordinator Sergeant David Noland. I mean, once we were suspecting something was going on, you know, on Saturday, we called detectives, and so they showed up and started doing their investigation. Two detectives, Detective Hoke, who later becomes the case agent, and Detective Monroe, arrived at Rustler Park on Saturday afternoon. Detective Hoke is assigned the case because he speaks Spanish and could interview Jeanette's mother. They have preliminary interviews with Jeanette's parents and speak to the other witnesses. There were two other groups of campers at Rustler Park when Jeanette disappeared a father and son duo, and a group of six friends, all men, from Tucson. The search team stops at 11 p.m. It's now day three. Jeanette has been missing for 48 hours. The search for her resumes very early on Sunday morning. Time is running out and the dog handlers are frustrated because they're still having trouble locating a proper scent article. The following clips are from the discussions I had with Detective Hoke Sergeant Parker and Sergeant Noland. How could they not have had a single scent item? Because the family kept touching stuff. Everything they showed us is what we call contaminated. They contaminated it. On Sunday, they asked the family if they can send Las Cruces Police Department into their home to collect something that only Jeanette would have touched. Something like the pillowcase off her bed or an item of clothing from her hamper. Anything that would smell like her. They agree, and a friend of the family with a spare key lets police officers into the house. 
Here's Sergeant David Noland. You know, this is early, early, early. I can't remember what time, but it is pretty early Sunday morning. But it takes almost the entire day for the scent article to arrive. And so we're like, where's the scent articles? Oh, they're on their way. I go, well, we need them now. You know, these dogs have been sitting here all day. And uh, I go, it doesn't take that long to get from Las Cruces to here. Finally, it's 6.30 p.m. when a friend of the family brings the new scent articles to Rustler Park. It was a tennis shoe, a bathrobe, and a pillowcase. The dog handler inspects the items and chooses to use the shoe. Once scented, the dog dashes towards a set of vacant cabins. Then the, the team called us on the radio and said, this dog's on something. And we're going right down the road. So we get down there, and the dog handler's like, this is the craziest thing I ever heard. She says, my dog was on the trail. So this is a big, huge bloodhound. And the handler's about your size. And this dog is dragging her. So down the road, cross country, right to this one cabin, goes right around the end of the cabin and just stops. The end. Like, disappeared right off the face of the earth. The dog tracked hard to the cabin, went around the north side of it, and then made a sudden stop, as if it were expecting the person to be right there. But the dog handler noted that it was acting like it was tracking a fresh scent, not a 48-hour-old one. And so they end up searching the area, going down the side of the mountain into the bottom of the canyon, to no avail. We come back up here and I told the handlers, I go, let me look at this stuff. So they pull two Ziploc bags out of the paper bag. And the pillowcase is folded up real neat in one of these little tiny Ziploc bags. And I open it and all you can smell is downy. And then I opened up the bigger one, it was like a pair of sweatpants. Smell like downy. And who had suggested taking those specific items? I just said something that nobody had touched, like her pillowcase. Right. And I told Las Cruces PD exactly how to do it. And but was there a member of the family there? I think she means there was. Uh, oh, there was, the home. Who selected there was somebody, those I don't know. A family, a friend. Well, no, it was a family friend that had keys to the house. Because all the family was up here. So they determined that those articles had all been washed and smelled strongly like fabric softener. Instead of searching for Jeanette, the canine was probably searching for an individual who used a similar fabric softener scent. Probably one of the volunteers who had searched the area near the cabins. The other two items were both neatly folded and put in Ziploc bags, which is not how they had been instructed to collect them. In fact, Nolan said he had given specific instructions to Las Cruces PD on how to collect the items. Ziploc bag, wrong gloves. side out, gloves, reach in, pull it into the bag, pull Plastic it closed, bag. zip it closed, and don't touch it. In order to fold them and place them in a bag this way, someone would have had to touch them. But these items also smelled like fresh fabric softener. To me, this was particularly puzzling because I couldn't fathom how her pillowcase would have been freshly laundered. Could it be that maybe it smelled strongly like fabric softener even if it had been used? Maybe whoever did the laundry used a lot of fabric softener and it overpowered Jeanette's scent. Because otherwise, I found it hard to imagine that someone would wash the sheets before heading out on a camping trip. There's a lot to do to prepare for camping and washing bed sheets would be low on my priority list. And the same thing goes for the shoes. 
How could they have been freshly washed? Why would someone select shoes that seem like they'd been washed? And why wouldn't they be instructed to choose a specific pair of shoes instead of those? Are shoes really washed that often with fabric softener? So many questions, and so frustrating to think that so many things could have gone wrong. According to what one of the search and rescue volunteers noted in a supplement report, the family did not seem upset that the Sen articles were clean and couldn't be used. Sunday had just come to an end. The case file reads as follows, quote, An extensive search was conducted by a multi-agency search and rescue task force, encompassing three days with negative contact with the victim, end quote. All shoe prints of the family are photographed, and all footprints found in the area belong to family members. None of them seem to be Jeanette's. The five-mile radius around the spot Jeanette was last seen was searched once again. Even cadaver dogs assisted the search on Sunday. There is not a single trace of Jeanette. The dogs can't track her, her footprints aren't around, and none of the other people at Russell Park remember seeing her. Sergeant Nolan has been in law enforcement for over 30 years. He's retired now, but full-time search and rescue coordinator. I have no idea. This is the strangest search I've ever been on. So, really, I mean, I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to speculate, but I mean, is the she just disappeared right off the face of the earth? I've never been on a search where we didn't have some kind of sign of anybody. The person we were looking for, we never found one single iota sign of her. That was really odd. Obviously, you sound like you're suspicious. Like I said, it's odd. How does somebody just disappear without a sign? I mean, if she was walking up and down that road, like Mom said, from either one of the bathrooms, we'd have found some kind of footprints of her. On Monday, June 22nd, detectives come back to Rustler Park. Also with them are some human remain dogs. They're surprised to find that the campgrounds are empty. I think in, in my assessment of his, in, in a way, is a lot like Dave's and uh, Tal's. Because when I interviewed him, the impression that I got is he was very, it, it, I didn't get the, what I would expect, the emotion as being a father or a grandfather as I am right now. I would have been falling apart. Another thing, I'd have never left that place. If I felt that, that the search and rescue team were not doing their job or what have you, I'd have never left that place I'd as a father. I, I'd have died I, I out there. I'd have been raised in the hill. Yeah. Me too. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. We don't even know if she was here. We're going off the word of mom and dad. Were we a target of something? What if somebody's got a vendetta against us? Let's just say that I drove up in a car and Janet's walking. Yeah. And I pull up and I roll down the window and I say, would you like a ride? Uh-huh. Would she get in the car? No. 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 She would not. We just saw a car leaving, you know, um, and I remember the officers were asking us, like, oh, can you describe the driver? And we're like, no. You know, we just, again, it was just like a, a car leaving the campground. 